Hello and welcome to this episode of Star Wars Universe Podcast. Today we're continuing our travels through the books of the Star Wars Universe. We're talking about Thrawn, Star Wars Thrawn. This is the this, the first book of the first canon, Disney canon, uh, books about Thrawn. We had a whole bunch of books about Thrawn uh, in the Legends canon, many of which are quite good, and definitely worth reading. And this was the first time that Timothy Zahn had been brought back and it's Book one of the first Thrawn trilogy. There's a second Thrawn trilogy. People get confused about them, but we're talking about Thrawn in the. Uh, we're talking about Thrawn published in 2017, and we're here with Danielle of Written in the Star Wars fame and a frequent guest here on the Star Wars Universe podcast. Danielle, um, how are you doing? And uh, what made this book one you wanted to talk about? I'm great. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, I don't think I've talked about it on a podcast yet, so I'm very excited. I just love. I love Timothy Zahn's writing. And mm-hmm. I really grew to care a lot about Thrawn as a character and the other characters introduced in this series um, because of these books. And yeah. I just, I can't wait to talk about it. And just for some background, what was your history with Thrawn? Had you read the Heir to the Empire books from Legends? Had you first encountered Thrawn in Rebels? What was your your background there? So I knew about him from the Legends books. I've not read his, um, Timothy Zahn's Legends trilogy um, but I had been introduced to him in, um, I think it's Choices of One okay, with uh, Mara Jade. And, but it's like a brief introduction to him. You don't really get a lot. And I had no idea who he was when I first read that book. So yeah. I was just kind of like, who is this guy? I, have, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what they're talking about. Thrawn? Thrawn who? And then I, when I watched Rebels, uh, that was my first like real, true, uh, in-depth introduction to Thrawn as a character. Yeah. And I was intrigued by him in Rebels. I thought he was a great antagonist. Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't really care about him that much until mm-hmm. these books. Yeah. And I think these books do a really interesting job of taking you in his in his perspective in a way that you know, it, it makes people really wrestle with, is he a villain? Is he an antagonist? Is he... Uh, someone who was justified from his point of view or not. And that's a question I think is often asked a lot online and that we'll be discussing. Because <laughs> um, I think we, I'm sure we both have very strong opinions on that. <laughs> and I think this book does a great job of exploring them. Let me start by backing up, though, a bit and just giving a brief summary of the book for those who haven't read it or those who read it a while ago. And I will say, if you want to read it, I will include in the show notes a link to where you can get uh, you can get the book online for sure. Uh, like an online copy, but if you want a physical copy, you can get it through um, uh, bookshop.org, which is a chain of, it's sort of a way to basically order the book online from a local bookstore so that you can get a copy of the book without going through Amazon or something like that. Uh, I think this podcast gets like a little bit uh, of support from it as well. And just, you can get the book often to be a used copy. So it'll be cheaper. Uh, and, and all that. So if you want to read the book, definitely do that. Feel free to pause now or keep listening. So anyway, here's the basic summary of the story. And there's a lot of ins and outs. And I'm just going to kind of paint over the main plot points. We start on a planet near the outer in the Outer Rim, near the edges of wild space. Uh, it's an Imperial ship. And the, a, a, a settlement of Imperial uh, officers and, and soldiers and the like is being harassed. And they don't quite understand by who it's doing. And eventually they find out it's this guy, uh, Thrawn. Thrawn is his nickname. It's the, uh, his much full, his full name is, I 
don't have a written. It's it's Mithron Anato. Is that correct? Nerodu. Nerodu. I've yeah, never Mithron, listened to it, so I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> I think it's Mithron Nerotu. And as you can hear, the, like, the Thrawn is in the middle. And in later books, we learn that's kind of a naming convention that most chests have this three-part naming, uh, three-part name and then a nickname in the middle. And so he's chess, he has blue skin, he has red eyes. But the Emperor himself is very interested because he has a very strong amount of tactical skill. And he's very good at tactics, as we'll learn later. He's also very bad at politics, which we'll definitely talk about. And in the course of the this, he he doesn't speak basic very well. He speaks a language called Cybisto, which is kind of a language used out on the Outer Rim, which another person on the ship, uh, and uh, a cadet, Eli Vanto, speaks. So the two of them are paired together. Vanto doesn't love this at first because Vanto just wanted a career in shipping, but the two of them go off and now have lots of adventures together. And the... Over the course of those adventures, we find out that the Empire is very anti-alien, and that's been implied before, and but I think never really stated quite as clearly as it is here. And also some justification, not justification, but some explanation of why that is is given, which I thought was interesting. Uh, it's still prejudice, but it's like you get an understanding of where the prejudice comes from, and even though it's clearly still wrong. Basically, though, he faces a number of challenges along the way, and Often he's able to show that his superior tactics win out. Often he needs political help because other people aren't... He's not good at politics. Uh, he just doesn't understand motivations beyond uh, just doing what is the right thing to do or the most efficient thing to do. Uh, That's, again, a part of his character we'll definitely talk about. And over the course of these adventures, he he comes into contact with a person who's calling himself Night Swan, who is kind of running some kind of criminal organization that eventually we find out is an insurgency against the uh, against the Empire. And he has a lot of kind of like ins and outs of trying to figure out what's happening and, and seeing this guy as a challenge and he enjoys the challenge and he really respects Night Swan as, a, as an adversary. And eventually they meet up and we learn more about their various ideologies. Night Swan is standing against the Empire and is challenging the Empire because he thinks the Empire is wrong and bad. And he kind of challenges Thrawn and why are you still with the Empire? And Thrawn's response is that there is this much greater, much more evil threat and he needs the Empire to be strong either so that it can join him in standing against this evil or so that it can be, you know, the slower swimmer that the shark catches instead of him and his people. And he offers Night Swan the chance to go to be with the Chiss Ascendancy uh, Night Swan offers him the chance to uh, join the rebellion. They both have to turn each other down, and there's a final con- conflict in which, from all we know, uh, Night Swan is killed. Uh, and I don't mean to imply that like there's, there's nothing in the book that tells us that Night Swan isn't dead, except that like in stuff like we don't see the body on page. We're told it is, so who knows? By the end of it, Thrawn has become a Grand Admiral. He is. He has also learned about the Death Star, a project that he is deeply uncomfortable with, though it's clear that he had, he never makes any moral objection to it. He he believes that it is a waste of resources in part because it can be destroyed, like anything can be destroyed. And he 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 doesn't like attacking civilians, and so he does have a little bit of a compunction with that, but his primary idea is just that this is a bad use of, this is not the way the Empire can be strongest. He challenges the Emperor on that a little bit. The Emperor gives him an answer that he's kind of okay with, 
And at the end, he's being introduced to Darth Vader, which sets up book two. And then at the very end, we also find out that Eli Vanto, having proven that he has some real compunctions with the Empire, has been invited by Thrawn to go off and join the Chiss. So that's the main plot. And then a secondary plot is, as you mentioned, Arinda Price, who will be remembered by people who remember uh, Rebels, especially seasons one and two. I think actually all four seasons. She's the governor of Lethal, uh, I believe by the start of uh, Rebels. And so this is kind of a lot of her story, how she comes to get in power. It's a really interesting story because she starts out as a fairly sympathetic character, someone whose mind, her family mind, is being caught up in imperial politics and basically taken from her through corruption. And in kind of a, a classic but tragic story, she winds up trying to go to the Empire to to get involved with things so that, you know, you know, it's the like, I want to get power so I can use it to to get mine back from my, my family and my people. And she eventually becomes fairly corrupted by the Empire herself, but still out for her own goals. And, and so the book ends with her solidified in her power over Lethal, solidified in her very bullying position over Minister Tua, who we see from the books, um, having displaced Governor Azadi from power, who we also remember from Rebels, and having established herself as having a, a relationship with Thrawn. Uh, she has been his kind of political protector a few times. He has helped her in his own way. And by the end of the book, she's basically inviting him to come and help her with the insurgency on Lothal. Uh, so it's kind of setting up his, ver we're kind of like, kind of clearly placing where he, where this book is in the rebel storyline. Uh, so did I miss any big thing? There's obviously so much of the plot that I didn't get into, but in terms of like the inst important story beats, is there anything that I missed? I don't think so. I think you got everything. Yeah. yeah. So let me just start by saying in terms of who Thrawn is and the relationship between him and Eli Vanto, in terms of adaptations, I think after Cumberbatch, Thrawn is my favorite Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Yes. Because this is very, very clearly a Holmes and Watson dynamic. Yeah. Uh, would you agree with that? <laughs> so no, a hundred percent. I, um, as I was reading it, I actually have several notes where I was like, this is giving Sherlock and Watson like mm -hmm. in the best possible way. Uh, and then I found out later that, um, uh, Timothy Zahn reads the Sherlock books, um, and watches, you know, adaptations or at least reads the books. Um, every time he sat down to write, um, a new book, a new Thrawn book, um, just to get himself in that headspace again. Yeah. And I was like, it comes across so clearly in the book that that's what it is. And I, I love it because it's like on its head, like Thrawn and, and Eli aren't like, they're like, um, a morally gray Sherlock and Watson, which mm -hmm. we don't really see that often. And, and then I would argue that Night Swan is the like Moriarty flipped on his head, because yeah. Night Swan's actually like a good he's for the good guys. <laughs> like he's yeah. he's fighting for, you know, the the fledgling rebellion. And uh and I just I love that that it's it's Sherlock and Watson looked through like a very kind of like distorted mirror kind of. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so well done and there's so many little ways in which like I'd I'd read the book before, but somehow it really struck me this time. You know, Thrawn is really presented and I think, you know, Autism has existed in some form or another for probably as long as humans have existed, but we haven't had words for it. And there certainly were no words for it in the time Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was writing Sherlock, 
But I think a lot of people now would look back and be like, he exhibits a lot of traits of autism or, or some kind of neurodiversity. And I think in the same way, like, we know nothing about Chiss mental chemistry. And so to to say that that exactly translates to, to their brain functions, I think is not an accurate way to do it. But like certainly for me as an autistic neurodiverse person, I could relate to Thrawn very much. And I think a lot of people would say the same. And he's very much as Sherlock is portrayed. And Watson slash Eli Vanto is often kind of his translator. Like mm-hmm. Vanto, there will be times where Thrawn says something that is not meant in any way to be offensive, but comes off as incredibly arrogant or incredibly presumptuous. And Vanto has to kind of both explain to Thrawn why what he said is is is, is being misunderstood and also explain to others, like, no, 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 that's not what Thrawn meant. Yeah, and I love that because he's literally his translator. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. literally and also in a, like, a more, like, um, between-the-lines way as well. And so mm-hmm. I, I actually, I, I had never thought of it that way until you said it. And I was like, wait, no, he's he's literally his translator from Chiz to Basic. Yep. And then the other type of translator, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's kind of a wonderful thing of, over the course of the book you see Vanto's uh, position change quite dramatically because at first he hates this. Mm-hmm. He He's very much a like rural, I want to be out in, you know, the prairie doing the, the supply work that I'm really good at. I don't want to be involved with this chiss. I don't want to be involved in the big city. I don't want to be involved in imperial politics. And there's even a scene early on where Thrawn is attacked where part of him is thinking, if Thrawn loses this fight, I'm free. And, and he quickly feels a lot of shame for that. But then a couple of other times, there are moments where Thrawn might be getting court-martialed. And he's he's feeling this moment of, like, I should defend Thrawn. I want to. But I have to remember that if Thrawn goes down, I get my old life back. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the book, there, there's a moment where kind of Thrawn sort of says something. He's like, no, I'm, I'm really happy where I am. I'm happy I'm with you. And yeah. I, I just thought that was really beautifully done. Yeah, I like that element of the book because... I think one thing that draws a lot of people into um, Thrawn's character and his relationship with Eli Vanto is the fact that they're both kind of, in their own respects, like marginalized within the Imperial construct because Eli is from a wild space and that is heavily looked down upon. He has a wild space accent, which is like a Texan accent. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And um, and and he also in in the comics he has darker skin too, and so I think it, it is heavily heavily implied that like you know all of this is meant to be you know it's it's intentional, and yeah. and Thrawn is a, a non-human in a very pro-human anti-alien uh, government, and so they're both looked down upon. They're both frequently criticized, belittled. Um, invalidated a lot. And I think a lot of people who are marginalized themselves relate to that when reading this. Mm-hmm. And especially, this is where like I, I, you can tell that Timothy Zen did his research for this because the dynamic between two differently marginalized people in a, in a environment that marginalizes you, that actively marginalizes you, it is common to 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 want to be like I'm just I just want to be for myself. Like I have enough issues. Yeah. I just want to focus on myself. I don't need anyone else like making this harder for me than it is. 
but you can't. Like, at the same time, you're yeah. like, but you can't because you know what they're going through. And, and I mean, you could, and some people do, but I it was so, it's so realistic, like that dynamic between them. And I just, I, it's a, a joy to read. And I think, I really love that point you brought up because something I hadn't even thought of is that there's actually a third person who is coming from a marginalized background mm. like that, and that's Arinda Price. Yep. And I think one of the marked contrasts, I think, is that Thrawn and Eli are able to work for each other. And she is much more out for herself. Mm-hmm. And and that's a real market contrast that, that we see between them. Yeah, I I love that. Because, that, yeah, that is another... It, it, it just continues to make more and more sense why they're, like, the three main characters of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, because Arenda Price does offer, like, a different perspective of, like... I, I compare her to Ezra a lot because they're both from Lothal. And um, they both lost things to the Empire. Ezra lost his parents. Uh, Price, Price's family lost their company and their home. And uh, they confront it in very different ways. Ezra mm-hmm. becomes very anti-Imperial and eventually fights against them. Price is like, uh, well, they can't take anything from me if I'm at the top. (laughs) If I join them and I'm at the top, it's like you either fight them or you join them. She joins them. And, um, and I, I love, I love watching that because you want to feel sorry for her and you kind of do at the beginning, but every choice she makes is actively like, don't feel sorry for me. Like she, she doesn't want anyone to feel sorry for her and you can't feel sorry for her up to a certain point because she becomes the, the reason that Lothal is the way we see it in rebels. And she turns her back on her people and her community in order to, uh, raise herself up. And that is the choice that Eli faces and doesn't make. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really well done because not only is she putting the people like, she's putting herself above the people of Lothal. She's also putting herself above the empire. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a, it's not my favorite writing in the book, but I think it's a good scene, especially what it tells us about her towards the end of the book. She, there, there's a different uh, encounter on a different planet. The one that her parents had been moved to when she got them off Lothal. And they're, they sort of need to put down this insurgency. And that's where the big fight against night's one is happening. And she knows that her parents might get caught up in things. And so she wants to rescue her parents even though she's had, but even then it feels more like because I want to be able to be the person who I rescued my parents, not because she has this like deep loving relationship with them. Uh, but in, in the course of that, she winds up killing an Imperial officer and then killing a whole bunch more because it's more important to her to save herself and to save her, her family than it is the Empire. So it's very much her against everyone, not that she's chosen the Empire over Lethal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always that's always a really interesting scene or part of the book to me because I think I think it is like she like her parents I think are her weakness and they're even though she treats them horribly and she obviously like doesn't respect them she still loves them yeah and I think that that it like that controls a part of her that is like because you expect her to be like oh I don't care blow it up like whatever um but she does go and get them and she does risk her life to do it and along the way she may be like why am I doing this can't believe I'm doing this but she does do it and I think that is like maybe the one I don't know if I'd call it like redeeming quality for her but it is the one thing where it's like this is still human everything she does she's not like some some evil otherworldly entity 
she's still a human being who has made choices to get her to where she is. And because she's a human being, there is still something out there that she cares about besides herself. And it's a nice ongoing theme with her because much earlier in the book, we'd seen that she she does get lonely. Mm -hmm. she, she has a desire for human connection and her loneliness winds up causing her to trust people who, in the end, in her mind, betray her. Yeah. Um, they were kind of trying to recruit her for the rebellion in some ways. Uh, and I, 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 if we see an indoor season two, I would love to see just like some mention, like Night mm -hmm. Swan get mentioned or some way of tying all these things in. But yeah, it's, it's a beautiful part of her character. And I think to me, it really speaks to the same kind of stuff I think that we got so much in Andor, but also in some other things of it's not just that people wake up one day and decide I'm going to twist my mustache and be evil McEvil, ha. It's that there are these incredibly corrupt systems you know, she tries at first to fight through the system to just not have this horrible thing be done. Because what basically happens is her family's mind is discovered to have this this metal that is deeply important to the Empire. We find out later because it's being used to build the Death Star. And they're just going to be screwed over. And she's trying to fight that. And then later when she's in senatorial politics, she's just totally screwed over as a pawn between these two high-ranking officials. And... Again, as you said, she's she's given choice after choice, and she always makes the wrong choice. And I, I, so I don't want to excuse her or justify her, but I also want to say that that like she shouldn't have had to make all these terrible choices, mm. you know. And so that it's it, in the same way that Indor does. I think it allows me to to recognize the humanity or the the sentientness, if it's not humans, of all these people who are put in these horrible situations. You know, it, it's corrupt systems, corrupt people, and they are corrupted, and that's on them but it's also on everything around them and i think it shows like this kind of goes hand in hand with that about how the empire nurtures the worst in people if yeah. if you if you join them if you if you let them they will nurture the worst in you and make you even worse than you were because the very first section we get for price is she's looking out over lethal and she's thinking about how much she hates it <laughs> she's yeah. like i don't want to be here all of these people who know each other i don't want them to know me like i don't i don't want to be out in this backwoods planet i want to be somewhere like coruscant she wants to be on a city planet and she wants to be important and she wants you know she wants and wants and wants and wants and she's already thinking about like how much better she is than the people around her and that there are people like that who aren't evil and who don't do horrible things, but who do, you know, just want more for themselves and, and care about that. And that's fine because everyone's different. Um, but when the empire gets a hold of that, when, when she immerses herself in the empire and they take advantage of, of, of her worst qualities, because those worst qualities are what get you power. And I just think it's really interesting how, how you, we see that play out with her story. Well, especially because, and I, I don't know how, especially because what, it really makes sense to me that the Empire is like that, mm -hmm. because one of the things that we've seen in books that explore the Sith and their philosophy, and this is primarily from Legends books, especially the Darth Bane books, but also uh, in, in some more recent stuff, including Rise of the Red Blade, which uh, Danielle and I talked about on a recent episode, is the idea that part of the ideology is everyone should be fighting each other. Everyone should be backstabbing each other so that eventually the strongest person will win out and then that strongest person can keep everyone else in line until someone betrays them. And all of the infighting that happens within the Imperial Navy 
uh, you know, Thrawn just doesn't understand it, but that it's that people are threatened by Thrawn, and so they want to cut him down, or, as you said, are threatened by someone like Price and want to cut her down, or Price needs to do this. It, it's very much the Sith ideology. Mm-hmm. And it is something that happens all the time, like in corporate world and political world. Like, it's not something alien to us, but I think it is definitely, like, it. the fact that Sith is now in charge and that that mentality is seeping into all aspects of the government and and the Navy, I think is not coincidental in the slightest. Yeah, absolutely. I love the way you put that. I never really thought about, I mean, obviously I know that the Sith is in charge, but I never thought about how that trickles down yeah. into into the the fascist government it becomes. Well, and one thing I'm curious about, because we know that they are doing a lot to honor those original Thrawn novels, Heir to the Empire trilogy. You know, and, and a lot has been very different because in that, you know, he basically comes back fairly soon after Return of the Jedi and all that. But one of the things that he says a lot in that is that he he recognizes the Empire's influence on the the Imperial Navy and thinks it was bad, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of comments that like Darth Vader killing subordinates all the time is not good for discipline. <laughs> yeah. uh, he does kill one subordinate, but he does it in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I do kind of wonder if in future Thrawn stuff, we'll see if, if he is either in TV or in more books, becoming more of an established figure in the post, uh, in the New Republic era. I'll be curious if he has that kind of like, I want to run the Imperial Navy without all this Sith nonsense. Mm-hmm. Which which is interesting because, so I've, n- I've not read the Heir, Heir to the Empire, um, mm-hmm. but uh, with these books, is you can see what has been brought over from that yeah. in, in him because even though he may not be like actively thinking, I want to run it this way to eventually like have the entire Navy be run that way, um, that is like he runs it efficiently <laughs> like that is the appeal mm-hmm. of him is that he is such a good leader and he's a good teacher even more so yeah. like not just a good leader he's a good teacher and and he's patient and he never underestimates his opponent and in the empire you have everyone's out for themselves and so they're constantly underestimating their opponents they're constantly focusing on everything but the task at hand and that leads to so so much failure for them but Thrawn is completely different and uh, I can see elements of like what you just discussed being in like the Heir to the Empire books um mm-hmm. like kind of woven into to him in this trilogy yeah definitely and that's a perfect transition because I will say in the Heir to the Empire books he is straight up a villain <laughs> and he has no compunction doing villainous things. Like he attacks civilian populations when it's needed. He does villainous things in this. He's betrayed. Like, and I, I've joked that I think somewhat that like Zahn kind of fell in love with his own character and wanted to <laughs> shift him into being a much more morally gray version. And I don't mind that. I think it's a very interesting character, but let's talk about his morality. Mm-hmm. What? Cause I do know that a lot of people have made him just kind of, kind of the same way that they're like, no, Anakin did no wrong. It's like, no, Thrawn did no wrong. He was doing what he had to against this greater evil. Um, what do you think of, of Thrawn morally in this book? Oh, it's so interesting because I love how Zahn handles this because it could very easily fall into the type of story where it's like you forget you're reading about the empire. You forget you're reading about the bad guys and, and you want you to like start rooting for them. And every time it got close to that, Zahn puts in something that reminds you, Hey, no, this is not what's supposed to be happening. And one part of that is, um, 
Thrawn goes to help out a fellow uh, a fellow Im- Imperial fleet or whatever, and uh, the battle is it, this battle is written really well. It's very exciting. You're like, oh my gosh, he's gonna do it. He's gonna pull off impossible odds, and then you find out that they were helping to prevent uh, enslaved Wookies from escaping, mm-hmm. and it's like, well. Yeah, that's not fun actually. I can't I can't support that. And 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 it's just like a switch. So it's like, yeah, you thought you were rooting for this. This is a reminder that yeah. this is who Thrawn is working for. And because he's working for them and because he played a part in this, he is like he is actively perpetuating the, you know, the harmfulness of the Empire. He is enacting it. He is a player in this game, whether he intends to be or not, whether he actually agrees with slavery or not, he is helping with this. And and I like that it's talked about because Eli brings it up to him. He says, I, I'm not comfortable with the Empire using slaves for their labor. Mm. And, and Thrawn says something right. about about <laughs> I, I actually the whole quote do you have it here. yes because it's, it's a good so one good. it's a good one yeah he says i'm not completely comfortable the empire using slaves sir and the throne responds terms are not always as they seem commander they are called slaves but they may in fact be indentured servants they may be prisoners working off their sentences they may have sold themselves into slavery as a means of repaying debts to others on their world i've seen all those situations at times eli you really think any of those are likely no thron said his tone hardening, but it does not matter. However, those beings were pressed into service. They are now imperial assets. They will be treated as such. Yeah. Like it's it's chilling. (laughs) It it is really chilling. And it's, I really enjoy things that explore the difference between immorality and amorality. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's where he is. There is no maliciousness Mm -hmm. in Thrawn. Even when, like there are times when he recognizes that people who have fought against him for horrible malicious reasons will be good resources to the Empire later on. Mm-hmm. And so he puts them in a place where they can't hurt him, but they also can do good for the Empire. He, he's not wanting to punish people, but he has this just incredible, like, I know what my goal is. And yeah. so every end that, ju- every means that gets to that end is justified. Yeah. And he gets uh, like tunnel vision and, yeah. and, this isn't a spoiler for the Ascendancy trilogy, really, but there's there's a part in one of those books where another character, he says that another character sees the people behind the culture or something, the hum- the you know the, the the actual people, and whereas he sees, he just sees them as as a means to an end or something, and right. and and he acknowledges that he doesn't see the humanity behind them all the time. He just he just sees their history and their culture and, and how they almost like it's a mechanical thing. Like they're all they're all kind of like, you know, wheels in a machine right. that are helping all of all of this turn and, and it makes sense to him that way and and he doesn't know how to look at it from a different perspective, but he acknowledges that other people do. And right. and I think that it's just such an interesting way from to be because you're right, he's not malicious. Um, in that instant, he's, he's just like, I, I, I can't deal with this right now because this isn't my goal. And, and if it was his goal, like if those were Chiz being enslaved, he would do something about it, but, yeah. but it's not. And, and that's neither malicious nor 
good. <laughs> like yeah. it is what you, it is. It's right. Just, you know, it just kind of is what it is with him, I guess. And it's so interesting because I admit, as I was reading the book, I was starting to re-question my morality on him or my moral judgment of him because, mm-hmm. you know, I think it, it, there was a big debate about this like a year or two online. And I was very much on the status of like, yeah, he took the side of fascism. He's a fascist. Mm-hmm. And and at the end of the day, that has to be what matters. And I was thinking more about it. I was thinking more about it in terms of history, in terms of like, well, when have we been in that situation? Mm-hmm. And not to take us into a long diatribe, but I, I am a, a big fan of World War II. I'm a big fan. But, you know, I'm very interested in the history of World War II, especially all the politics. And... You know, we won that war in large part because of the USSR and Joseph Stalin. And Joseph Stalin was a horrible, horrible dictator who may have killed more people than Hitler, you know, by in, depending on how you, you do the math and different things like that, and did horrible, horrible things. And, and I was wondering to myself, like, you know, if partway through that war there had been a rebellion within Russia and we knew that we could, like, support or even just kind of stand back and let the rebellion happen – and it might have freed Russia, but doing so would have, you know, completely, like, disorganized the Soviet Union and made the military fall apart and, like, not been able to help fight Hitler. Or we could have stood by or just helped Stalin put down that kind of a rebellion. And truth be told, it may, you know, I think it's entirely possible that there may have been some ways in which we helped Stalin put down some, mm. some people like that. And was asking myself, would that be justified to help defeat Hitler? Mm. And... That's a question I'm still on the fence about. Like, I want to say no, but like, also, it is how we ended Nazism. Yeah. And, um, but then we get to that slave part. And because they establish, and so, like, he establishes that, that Thrawn doesn't want to attack civilian populations, mm-hmm. which I do think is one place where Thrawn makes him a little bit better than he was in Rebels, where he very distinctly attacked uh, civilian populations. But it was, yeah, I think it was that slave passage that just sort of made me go like, no, like e- even if I think that he honestly believes that the Chiss can, that he can, that these people, the emperor can help the Chiss fight this much greater evil. The fact that he's able to go to that point of slavery and justifying it is just where I have to get off the boat and be like, I, I know that you think that you're the hero and I respect that and understand that, but I think you're wrong. Yeah. And I think that, that there is... Like we we can decide that there's not there's not a clear answer here. Like there there is the clear answer in that he was he was an agent of fascism. He was an agent yeah. of of um, of slavery, and and that is completely correct. But we can also say like overall his his entire everything that made him him falls somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And on a more personal level, I think if we don't look at like. I mean, can't not look at his actions, but like on a more personal level, as far as like what he believes, what he, what we know he believes because of we've been in his mind in these, right. in these sections. Um, but it is that moment because up until that point, I was also like, oh, I see why people are annoyed by his rebels uh, characterization now. But then we get to that point and I'm like, okay, this was after only a few years in the empire. Rebels mm-hmm. takes place 14 years after the empire takes over and Thrawn has been a part of this for like what, like maybe ten of those years at that point. Um, mm-hmm. What does being a consistent part of this fascist entity do to a person, even if they are as like middle, you know, set in their ways as Thrawn is? There has to be some type of like wearing away, chinking, ch- uh, like uh, chipping away of the armor, and 
kind of reforming him into the empire's vision, (laughs) emperor's vision a little bit, because, you know, we see how that happens with Price, um, taking, taking who she was and making her an even worse version of that. I a hundred percent could, can see them taking Thrawn, who is a, you know, a military's dream weapon <laughs> and making him, remaking him in Palpatine's vision more so. And, and I think that had there been any longer, maybe he would have. Um, but yeah. I, I mean, I think that's the whole essence of the dark side is this idea that it's one thing I've always really loved about the Star Wars philosophy. It's that once you begin to ethically compromise yourself or to justify ethical compromises, the next one becomes easier and easier. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing with once you tell yourself that you can kill the the children of the people who killed your mother, then now killing others that are innocents becomes easier and easier to do. And, mm-hmm. and the same thing with Ron. And I, and I think that that last scene about the Death Star where, again, it's funny how memory works. I had remembered him being much more adamant against the Death Star. Mm-hmm. But instead, the Emperor just says like two or three things and he's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and he's like, mm, I don't think that's the best weapon, but whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and in later stuff, he does clearly still think it's a bad idea, but it's strategic. It's strategic. And and what does what is his answer to that? To try and make a weapon that is better than the Death Star, that is right. has, has more uh, longevity. But we'll talk about that when we get to the, to the later the books. Book. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. I want to read one other uh, uh, thing from the book. I have a couple of we may read, but, but this ties into this discussion directly. One of the interesting things about the book, let's talk about the writing style in a minute, but stay on Thrawn for now, is there are these passages at the start of every chapter in italics that are written without any reference to a person. They're written as though they're just sort of like a person should or a person should, you know, whatever. One should. But I think they're very clearly supposed to be in Thrawn's voice. And at the end, we find out that Thrawn left his journal to Eli Vanto. And like it, it's kind of weird that this book is in third person, but it sometimes it very much seems to be in first first person. And so I think the implication is supposed to be a belief that like Eli is writing this book and using parts of his journal. Um But anyway, this passage says, and this is so again in Thrawn, assuming it's Thrawn's voice, there'll be many cultural differences, and a warrior dealing with the Chiss must be wary of them. But never make the mistake of believing forbearance equals to acceptance or that all positions are equally valid. There are things in the universe that are simply and purely evil. A warrior does not seek to understand them or to compromise them. He seeks only to obliterate them. And like on the one hand, that would seem to undermine his sort of amoral position that he does have a very clear idea of right and wrong. But then the more I thought about it, the more I think what this says is that he, he yeah, he does see evil but that once he does, he has that, I think it's a very clear demonstration of very black and white thinking of something is evil and therefore there's no compromise with it and it has to be destroyed. And therefore, any to fight evil is good. And so any action in the fighting of the evil is thereby by definition good. Yeah. See, I thought I thought the passages were Thrawn's journal. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Oh, oh okay, okay, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, I, mis- I, mis- I misheard you. Apologies. No, I mean, it. Yeah, I, uh, I think that it's supposed to be that Thrawn's journal is being worked into this book because Van Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and yes, I agree with that, especially because we learn, well, we learn in this book, but we learn more about it in the Ascendancy Trilogy, about the Chiz stance on attack. And, mm-hmm. and that it's you never attack first, you attack 
when you've been attacked. So it's like a purely defensive uh, method they have. And and I think that that actually fits in well with it because if you're being attacked, they're allowed to use violence towards someone who is attacking them. Therefore, right. they're using violence against an enemy, an evil, an evil entity that is their enemy now. And yeah. And so if you view it that way, then I think that falls that falls in like very well with right. like the Chiz way of thinking, um, and even more so with Thrawn's way of thinking because he's taken that kind of ideology the Chiz had and and kind of like he he doesn't agree with it, but you can see how elements of it have influenced his own thinking. It was like if there's right. any threat at all to the Chiz, regardless of whether they've they've um, attacked first then they are the enemy. They are maybe not so much evil, but they are the enemy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's a great way of putting that. And so what do you think of that writing style overall? Because it's, it's interesting how he... Um, all right, let me actually read about it. All right, so is there anything... I totally agree with you there. I think there's a really, really great point. Is there anything more we want to say on Thrawn himself? Or can we move... Are you ready to move on to the next thing? I think I'm ready to move on. I think, yeah. So I'm sure we'll keep coming back to it for sure. Um, what do you think of the writing style of this book? Because it's, it's, it's always in third person. And there are different point of view characters. But we never we never have Thrawn as the actual point of view character. The Thrawn chapters are written for the most part with Vanto uh, as the point of view character. But then in those chapters, we get the, in italics observations about what the characters are doing in terms of like their body language and things like that, that, that my understanding at least is are very much supposed to be uh, Thrawn's observations in the third person. Yeah. I viewed that as his, as his perspective sections. Um, and I loved it because it, it put me in his way of thinking. Like he has a very strategic analytical way of viewing situations. He's very observant and and he notices every little thing that someone does, and so and so the the even the scenes where he's he's talking about how someone's like lip twitches a specific way, mm-hmm. or um, their skin flushes, or any of these other things, those are all like being filed into his mind uh, as as their their reactions to what he's saying or what's happening and why they're reacting that way, what it means, what it indicates right. about what their reaction is going to be like what they might say next or what decision they might make because of that. And I don't think I would have understood his character without those sections because it's like seeing the way he thinks you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. The, it must be how Eli eventually understands him because once you see it, once you read it that way, every single thing he says, every single action he may, he does, makes sense. Like his reaction to things makes sense from there because you're, even if you don't agree with it, like this is how he thinks. And I can understand if you're thinking this way, why you would come to the conclusion that Thrawn does. I mean, in many ways, I think those sections are what really um, make make myself and I think for a lot of folks who are neurodivergent really identify with him Mm. because it's that level of, you know, and for me it has never been this extreme, but I've certainly had, had friends and colleagues for whom it has been where because you you know on some level you just don't get the body language you have to memorize it you have to pay attention mm-hmm. and then be able to, to uh, apply it and one thing i noticed that i hadn't noticed the first time i read this book but it really hit me this time in the early chapters he's just observing he's just saying like 
you know, their their facial muscles tighten, the the their their reddening or things like that. And then as the book goes on, it's more and more their face indicates disapproval. You know, their fa- like he's starting and, and and to me that was just a brilliant way of showing exactly what you're saying of at first he's noting the body language but he doesn't know what it means mm-hmm. and eventually he has memorized like this language means this. This language means this. Yeah, I loved it. And it was one reason why... So I read the comic adaptation before I read mm-hmm. the book. Um, and I love the comic adaptation. But... And, and because I loved it, I was like, what more can I get from the book? Like, I know that it's going to be different. But, like, how, how different? I'm probably just going to feel the same way. But those sections are what really separate the book from the comic adaptation. Because it's really hard to get that type of of analytical thought process across mm-hmm. visually. Um, and I know that like you, it can be done, but in the comic I, adaptation, I feel like it, it wasn't done as well as it is in the book. And, mm-hmm. and it was really that, that the first section that we had of that, I was like, Oh, this is, this is different. Like this has things that the comic adaptation didn't. And I think it's better for that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I haven't read the comic adaptation, but that makes total sense. Yeah. And it's, it's something, again, that I think I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Thrawn on screen. I, I don't know how you could possibly capture it on screen, mm. you know, unless you just had a constant voiceover, which I think would be wonderful, but I think most people think is bad television. So. I think I think you can do it with well-directed silences and like mm-hmm. gaps and or not maybe not that but again we are dealing we'll be dealing you know I could potentially deal with a Thrawn that yeah. is uh, years after we first see him so maybe is a little bit yeah. more uh, adjusted as you said. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think it's fair. Certainly, like one thing that also occurs to me as we're talking about this is I think it's important that like the 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 neurodiversity and that the neurodiverse analogy may well be there, but also he isn't human and. One of the things that I think that we often forget about, and this is true even within human cultures, but especially if you go to other, you know, discover other kind of alien life, you know, it may, you know, human biology may be that your face reddens for particular emotions. Mm-hmm. It may be that just biology, it's totally different. Yeah. So it may also not be just that he doesn't pick up on it. And like, to me, one of the perfect examples I've heard of this in, uh, and I've seen is, you know, when I learned that in a lot of Asian cultures, direct eye contact is considered rude. Mm-hmm. And and that and I'm it's probably a much more complex topic than I'm I'm giving a very brief overview of, but the, the idea being that there's certainly been a lot of like, you know, perception, you know, racist stereotypes about you know people from Asia, uh, based in part on like you know they never look you in the eyes, so it must be shifty or you know all this kind of racial nonsense, and I think that that's another thing that that is so easy with to, that we think in Star Wars of how racially diverse. Uh, if not human racially, unfortunately, though it's getting better, but like uh, species diverse it is, uh, that the Empire is very much not as they mm-hmm. talk about this. And so it's another way in which he has to learn all this human stuff. Yeah. And especially like never or not really have ever being around humans before being as isolated mm-hmm. as the true ascendancy is. Yeah. I also like that they give, again, not a justification, but a little bit of explanation for the, the prejudice that as they say, it's because the separatists was primarily alien, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is funny because during my uh, Clone Wars coverage, we talked about this, how I think it's part because in a kid's show, they didn't want to show our heroes killing humans. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so they mostly had them sh- killing uh, robots and occasionally very kind of like scary looking aliens. Yeah. 
and and so weirdly in the Clone Wars, the only time we see humans is in leadership, like Dooku or the Senate and stuff like that. Yeah. But but I think this was a nice way of picking up on like yeah, even if it's for whatever weird reasons, the canon is that most of the Separatists were not human. Yeah, and it and that like also plays into like every time any fascist government has worked at turning its people against uh, yeah. other types of people has been, well, the, this group did all this stuff and they're the reason that we're in the situation we are right now. So, yeah, so it, it is like, it, it makes sense that that's what they would say. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I did an episode a while ago about how Dooku would be remembered, uh, you know, positively or negatively. And now I kind of wonder if the, like, if the Imperial story might talk about like, Dooku is just a person who brought up some very reasonable problems with the Republic that the Empire has now fixed, but then Dooku's dream was taken over by all these aliens. And <laughs> yeah. stuff. That's right. They were, they were the, the, there's a reason that all of those were the ones that Anakin killed on Mustafar. <laughs> oh, yeah. They were trying to take over Dooku's legacy and turn it into something horrible. <laughs> and it's the horrible Jedi who yeah, Dooku. Yeah. Um, yeah, love that. Love that. Um, so what else about this book did you want to get into? Oh gosh, what what all it there's so much about it that I loved. Um I guess there's there's this idea, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, um, of, of like how Thrawn runs as a as a leader, how he runs his like his ship and everything. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that like I'll, I'll get into more when we talk about the other books, but you can see it here, just like just how differently he is, different he is from the other imperial leaders, and mm. and I just I love the, I love I use that word loosely, I love the idea that um, like what might have happened if Thrawn hadn't died in Rebel or not died, but if Thrawn hadn't, um, you know, been forced out, uh, of wherever Lothal and the empire at the end of Rebels, what might've happened? Because you can see in this book very clearly, like, yeah, he was probably pushed through the ranks a little bit because of Palpatine's influence, but also like, he's very good at what he does. Yeah. Very, very good. And I'm just, I'm curious because, I've I've had people say before on some of my reviews of the book videos um, mm-hmm. that it's hard for them to balance how good Thrawn is at his job and how good of a leader he is with how horrible the rest of the Empire uh, is, mm-hmm. especially the Imperial Navy and just like not necessarily unorganized, but just you know not not good leadership. Yeah, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. I mean, I think we see some of that in Rebels, mm-hmm. in the clashes he has with Constantine. Yeah. Constantine is that – he's much more interested in protecting his own ego and his own reputation. And in the end, it's his desire for vindictiveness and maliciousness that gets him killed, um, where he you know, is like, I'm, I'm more focused on uh, not letting this one ship get past me and not letting you know, these, these rebels uh, embarrass me personally. And he winds up screwing up the siege. Uh, and and so yeah, I think it's it's, and it is interesting, and it's it is hard to admire an enemy. It's hard to admire someone who's doing these terrible things. And I think the fact that um, a lot you know a lot of the evil that the empire does is kept off screen or off page is 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 necessary. You know, and we actually have an interesting question about that uh, that we'll talk about in our member section, but. 
I think one of the things that I love about Thrawn is that he makes a he respects his enemies, you know, and like there's the, the scene in Rebels that is to me the the closest we get to this kind of Thrawn is where they're in the home of the Sandulas and he figures out who Hera Sandula is. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he says to one of his subordinates, like who's, who's, you know, is just treating her like she's just trash. Like we can't do not be so rude to our host. We are in the home of Hera Sandula and that's her. Mm-hmm. And, and his respect for the Kalakori, the, the religious implement that she has. And I fundamentally believe that he means that. Yeah. Like that he, he's not just being sort of insulting and malicious. He honestly is like, no, you are a warrior. You're a warrior who is doing something that I think will destabilize the empire and that's bad and I have to stop mm-hmm. you. But I respect you as a fellow warrior. Yeah. And that's a whole other topic of like, is there value to like honor in war? And like, <laughs> does, it, does it make war more palatable in a way that I think there's a very legit argument of like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Terrible. But, um, you know, I, I have always thought that Emperor Palpatine was far and away the weakest part of Star Wars in terms of the, and, and like, yeah, it's fun to have a villain who just is malicious and evil and bad so mm-hmm. that we can feel good watching him get destroyed and watching them get destroyed. But I think, and I do think those people have existed, and, and Hitler and Stalin are two examples, and there have certainly been many others. But in most cases, I like my villains a lot more complicated. Yeah. And I, I, I like, and, and so to me, I don't, there's never a point in which I, even any part of me that feels that Thrawn might be justified, and eventually I don't think he is, but I think I understand him. Mm-hmm. I never feel, there's never a part of me that feels like that because Thrawn was justified, therefore the Empire was justified. Yeah, I agree. Um, I also think that, it's, it's really interesting, and I think that this this first book put it into perspective for me so much more about how um, Thrawn, like I said, Thrawn never underestimates his enemy, except when it comes to Lulfall, the Lulfall rebels. And I find that so interesting because he doesn't underestimate them at the beginning, but the more they continue to um, kind of get away from him, sometimes by for reasons that aren't his fault... Like, you know, Price does her thing and messes everything up for him. Uh, the more you see him kind of start to lose it a little bit. Like, he loses, yeah. he, he, he veers off from his never underestimate them, uh, never, um, never react, always, you know, just act. Like, don't react to what they're doing. Like, have your plan, go buy it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he, he let it's like in rebels we see him like let himself get away from it a little bit and yeah. i think this book like really put it into perspective like if he hadn't done that like he probably would have won like if there were you know obviously it's the story had to go a specific way but um but i just i i just love that you 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 see the power of never underestimating your enemy and that yeah. the em- empire that was its biggest fault was that it they always underestimated their underestimated their enemy, which is ironic because Palpatine has so many contingency plans in case something happens. But, yeah. but yeah, I just I just love that about Thrawn. I think it makes him so interesting. Yeah, I think it's such a good point, and I like I've commented that I think th- that uh, Timothy Zahn. It's interesting Zahn and Thrawn. <laughs> yeah. and, and I do think there's an extent to which he fell in love with his own character, oh, such 100%. that. Like, I, 
I think you're right that there's a justification, but I do think that it is like it is hard. He writes like the way this term is normally used is ridiculous and terrible. But in this case, Thrawn is the most Mary Sue who was ever Mary Sue. Mary Sue. <laughs> uh, or Gary Stew, perhaps being a better term. And like I do think there's an extent to which the way he is written here, yeah, I don't think I do not believe that this Thrawn is outsmarted by the rebels. <laughs> I, I think I think you're headcanoning it very well. Um, and in the same way, I think like the price who he writes is far more competent than the price we see uh, as Governor Lethal. And it's it's possible that it's she's so shaken up by what happens with her parents that that kind of unhinges her. But but that's I think also just like I love the way you write these characters, uh, Timothy's on. But like <laughs> yeah, it's a little hard. Like. He does have to get beaten eventually. You have to to give him a flaw somewhere. Um, Yeah, it's it is interesting. I need to I need to go back and reread it. I I, it's not been that long since I since I read it, but um, because I I think I under I I could have both prices coexist. I think a little bit more, a little bit better, um, just because she is so like price is so vindictive, and I think that at the point we see her later on she's been playing the long game for so long that she's just tired, but she only plays the long game against people. She thinks they're worth it. Like that she can gain something from. And when it's people who she doesn't think she can gain something from, then I think that's when she starts to make mistakes because she, she looks down so much on people that, um, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't see them as worthy. Then they can't possibly beat her. That's actually a really fair point, especially because she's done that all of her career mm-hmm. and never come back to, you know, the she she looked down on, like, the people who betrayed her. She was like, no, I can just stab them right back in the back. And then they were carted off to jail and she never had to worry about them again. So, I think I think it's that, also because, like, that is fair. I think we see it in, in this book, too, is that, like, she's never encountered anyone who's willing to, like, sacrifice themselves for anyone else either. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the – I love these books – and I love the character of Sherlock Holmes. But I have the same... The one critique I bring is the same critique I bring about Sherlock Holmes, which is that Sherlock Holmes and Thrawn are able to do deduce the most likely reason why a thing happens. Mm-hmm. But that's not always the reason. Like, something that is an 85%... If you play poker at all, you know that like something is an 85% possibility. It's something that's 15% of the time. It's not going mm-hmm. to be that. And... The art thing, I think, is even more so. Like, I think, like, someone who tried to say, like, just think about human art and how incredibly diverse it is. Uh, I love it as a conceit. Like, and as a conceit, I think I can buy into it of he really studies their culture and the descriptions of art gives a way. It's sort of a a way to demonstrate that if you just don't think about it too hard. Mm -hmm. And him being this tactical genius because he understands his enemies like you said, it's the exact. It, it is a brilliant way of doing it, and I think to make it more subtle and make it make more sense would be almost impossible to convey if, unless the book was thousands and thousands of pages. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple times where I roll my eyes a little bit, just like <laughs> I roll my eyes at Sherlock Holmes sometimes. Of like, yes, that's the most likely explanation, but you're always assuming that that's the reason, and that's not always going to be the case. Do you think? Well, maybe Lothal was was the the not the case. For him, he had to slip up at some point. <laughs> he had, it had the percentage had to work against him at one point. 
That was I, that was the fifteen percent. <laughs> and certainly that would be, you know, once the strike is over and we can start talking about uh portrayals of Thrawn that may be happening in the <laughs> post Rebels era, it would be interesting to see what he's learned from that. Yeah. I think that would be a really fascinating thing. Oh, I would love uh, yeah. That would right? that would be amazing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um any other last stuff we want to bring up about the book? Um I I had canon um Ilevanto as a Latino. <laughs> so if, yeah, if he's ever brought um onto animation or live action, I would I would like for him to be played by a Latino. <laughs> I mean we talked I don't know if this is part of the connection there, but like when we talked about Andor, we mm-hmm. talked a lot about how he comes from a more indigenous planet, you know, whatever it is, where he has a very strong accent. At first, he doesn't even speak basic. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I w- this comes before Andor, but I do wonder if there was some connection there of thinking about like you know, because did they ever say that um, uh, uh, Andor's planet come is is in wild space or is it is kind of like out on the rim there? Um, they don't ever specifically say, but the Republic did have a stronghold there. They had their refinery, and so it... Okay, yeah, so... It, it would have been, but it wouldn't have been a place that was frequently visited, I don't think, because it did quickly become mm-hmm. forgotten about. Um, right. But yeah, the, there's, not, there's not really... I don't think there's anything official about it. Yeah. So, yeah. one last thing I want to talk about yeah. with this book, because we actually got a great piece of listening right, feedback. Well, we got this a okay. while ago, oh, no, uh, and so I apologize yeah. well, to Danielle, thank you so uh, much. David really looking R, forward to We're going to do the whole trilogy um, and probably also the Ascendancy I really want to bring, bring your I comment. I do hope at some point, folks, we're going to get back to talking about TV and movies. But I really love that we're David wrote in. And I'm so glad that Thrawn would have done. So, for those who want to hear more of your stuff on Twitter and TikTok and places like that, where can you On TikTok, I am written in the Star Wars. On Instagram, written in the and on Twitter, Danny S394, because I like to make things difficult for me. But I talk about uh, Star Wars lately. I'm I'm honoring, uh, supporting the strike the strikers, and I'm just talking about books, video games for as long as those aren't also included in the strike, and uh, various other fun stuff. So I go back and forth because he knew. He knew Clone, what they were building. No, you needed to love Clone. We <laughs> learned this in one of the later topics. books. Uh, I think the last one. The Hunger Games mm-hmm. He knew what they were building. Well. And he yeah, didn't agree with it. But it's not uh, that he didn't agree with it because of a moral standing. It's because he didn't think that it was a good weapon. Because it was too big. It couldn't travel quickly. And if it was destroyed, then they would have to start over from scratch. And they wouldn't have anything else. Else, which is month, why he in, uh, content, proposed his content, uh, like tie defenders. What, um... And, and, and I are about to talk about um, which and I can't wait to talk more about get, that. Um, later books, <laughs> I have a whole uh, theory about that. Um, but uh, and, and you also just get access to some. Now, whether or not he thought it would actually work, uh, we don't know. Please, please become a member, so he could please, have had uh, this idea because he didn't really think that it would work to the level that it was being proposed or that he knew about for it. But he knew that it was a start. He knew that it was it was going to be a planet killer. And I'm going to do a different question. He never came up with anything against. That he never said any had any moral standing against that that we read about. So I think that he would not have wanted to be a part of it. But I don't think he would have made a big fuss about it because I kind of think I kind of think he would have turned tail and gone back to the chiz and been like, "We got to look out for this." 
On the other hand, I also think he would have been afraid that if he did that, that would be a surefire way for Palpatine to turn that weapon against the Chiz. So he might have just gone along with it in order to protect his people. Either way, I don't think he would have made a big stand against it. It's interesting because, you know, that scene at the very end of the book, the Empire, because he says, like, uh, I'm worried that you won't be able to put down multiple rebellions because you'll have focused everything on this one resource. And his response is, but once we have it, there won't be any more rebellions. And it seems to be that that's what convinces Thrawn. But then, and I want to give spoilers, we do learn in later books that Thrawn is continuing to advocate against it being completed. Mm -hmm. So I think it's fair to say he's still arguing with it. I think you're probably right, but I think I have a somewhat different theory, which is that I think it would be the moment where he decides not that the Empire is morally wrong or evil, but that the Emperor is not the stable ally that he hoped for to defeat the great evil. Yeah. Because I think what he would see is instead of a planet was so full of the rebellion that they had to be destroyed, that they had done it purely maliciously to try to compel Princess Leia to tell to tell to get information from them. And that he would see this as such a waste of resources, that Alderaan yeah. was a great resource, and that and as I think we kind of learn, so many people it winds up inspi- not cutting off insurgency, but inspiring so much more insurgency. Yeah. That I think he would just be Darth Vader was stupid. Tarkin yeah. was stupid. And and the Emperor allowed that. So Yeah, I think I think he would have I guess I guess he would have taken a stand on it in that it it was it, like I said it's not tactically sufficient it's not tactically mm-hmm. good and and there are so many reasons why it wouldn't work yeah but I agree I don't think he would take a moral stand against it unfortunately yeah. as much as I would like to say yes that would be the time he 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 rises with the rebellion no <laughs> I don't that think he would ever do that <laughs> yeah I think maybe around like you know. I think maybe he would have been willing to meet with Luke Skywalker and Leia and Han mm-hmm. and be like, I'll switch sides if you all can be organized and right. But I think the minute he met Mon Mothma, like when he says he's afraid that they'll be too disorganized, I kind of think the stuff that we're, we're, we're seeing about the New Republic is exactly what he'd be afraid of. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's like you said, like you said, when he meets Night Swan and Night Swan offers to, you know, says you should join us. Like you, you don't need the empire. You don't even agree with them. And he was like, nah, it's, it's too disorganized for me. It's not going to work. It's not, it doesn't have a chance at, at, uh, at what he needs it to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One last thing I want to say is that I love that in this book, they never say a word about what that greater evil is. Yeah. Because in the Legends book, eventually they do become major characters on screen, and so you have a chance to sort of debate, like, well, are they evil, and are they more evil than the Empire? Mm-hmm. I love it here we never learn about them. Yeah. We just get them as this, like, off-screen thing. Yeah, that, that was fun because it, it, it is like, well, Thrawn says they're a big threat. How much do I want right. to trust, like, Thrawn's ideas about this? Um, right. Especially when you learn at the end of the book that he wasn't actually, or well, he tells Night Swan that he wasn't ex- exiled. He was sent to the Empire for a purpose right. um, to protect the Chiz. But, yeah. yeah, so what else has he been lying about? Who knows? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> all right, well, this has been great. Danielle, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, and if people want to find more about yourself, where can they find that? At this point, I must apologize. We had some technical difficulties, probably why my own uh, voice doesn't sound quite as good as it normally does. 
but also it wound up that we lost a little bit of the recording, including Danielle telling you about all the places you can find her. All of that is in the show notes, as is all the ways, of course, you can find this podcast and the other Ethical Panda productions. You can find ways to become a member, ways to contact us, ways to contact Danielle. Please check out all of that. And to our members, please stick around for our bonus content. And to everyone else, we have spoken. We have spoken.